If you ever thought about starting your own podcast, you should check out Riverside. Riverside is an online recording studio that lets you record podcasts and video in studio quality from anywhere. And if you click on the affiliated link in the episode description and you buy a subscription, you will also be supporting the podcast. And if you are going to start your own podcast or you just want to continue to listen to great podcasts, you're going to need headphones or speakers. If you click on the Amazon affiliated link, you can get great deals on headphones and speakers. And if you make a purchase, it will also help support the podcast. And if you ever want to read a book I have mentioned on this podcast, I now have an affiliated link for Bookshop. All the affiliated links that I mentioned will be in the episode description for this episode. This is just a reminder that this podcast has merch and a Patreon, and if you could contribute to one of those to help keep this podcast going, I would greatly appreciate it. The story of King James the Sixth and First has been a long tale to tell, the longest tale that I have told on this podcast. A tale that has been full of murder, schemes, treason, scandal, and lovers. If you have been with me through it all, thank you for sticking with me for all four of these episodes. Now we are at the end of this saga. Hi, my name is Courtney Jewell, and you are listening to the eighth episode of the fourth season of History Shelf, a podcast about history that proves that sometimes facts is even more interesting than fiction. We are in season four of History Shelf, and it is titled They Are a Rainbow. This season of History Shelf, I will be covering each week a historical figure that was a part of the LGBTQIA community. These were people that during their time, they had to hide a part of their identity from the world. So while I fully believe that those who were out and proud in their lifetime, even if it had the potential to cost them everything, deserve to be praised and recognized, those are not the people that I will be covering this season. I am covering the ones that were made to love in the shadows, the ones that had to lie to most or all of the people around them. Now, I know that sexual orientation and gender identity are complex, and some of the terms that I will use to describe these subjects were not around in some of their lifetimes. So obviously some of these subjects would not have used the same words to describe themselves as I will be using. But I don't want to get too hung up on my wording. I just want to celebrate a part of these individuals that in their time, there was pressure all around them to feel shame about. I want to focus on that love and gender are not black and white. They are a rainbow. And for this week, I am talking about King James the Sixth and First one more time. This is part four of King James the Sixth and First. So there are three other parts before this one. And I recommend that you listen to those three episodes before you listen to this one. But if you don't want to do that, that's fine. If you want to jump around and listen to the episodes out of order, that's okay. Or if there's just one particular 
episode that you want to listen to, that's fine too. As of right now, out of James's episodes, part two is the one that has the most listens. And that's okay. If you have listened to all of the episodes, but you still need a recap, don't worry. I got you. I understand. Part one premiered one month ago. So I understand if there's some things that you have forgotten. So here's the recap. James was the son of Mary Queen of Scots and Lord Darnley. Lord Darnley was murdered when James was a baby. Mary Queen of Scots may have had something to do with his murder. Mary was forced to advocate and James became the King of Scotland when he was one year old. He never saw his mother again. James was raised a Protestant even though both of his parents were Catholic. One of his lovers may have been a man by the name Esme Stuart. James wanted to be the King of England, so he made peace with England, even though Queen Elizabeth I was the one that had his mother executed. James became the King of England after Elizabeth died. James wanted to combine both Scotland and England and make them one country. Both Scotland and England were like, no dude, we don't want that, so that didn't happen. At first, England was happy to have James as their king, but the honeymoon phase didn't last long, and people started trying to figure out ways to get him off of the throne, or at the very least, to get him to be nicer to Catholics. There was the byplot that tried to do that. Then there was the main plot that was happening at the same time as the byplot. The main plot plotters wanted to kill James. Both of those plots were found out about, and a lot of people were punished. Most of them were executed. Then there was the gunpowder plot. The plan there was to blow up Parliament, killing James and other Protestants. William Parker was a Catholic member of Parliament, and he got a letter from someone that warned him about the plot. The plotters were found, and they were all executed. Catholics that helped them were also executed. Even some that didn't were executed or imprisoned and fined. James had the Bible translated from its original languages into English, and that helped spread Protestantism. James continued to be in massive debt. James met a man named Robert Carr. Robert broke his leg in a jousting match, and James nursed him back to health. Robert became James's lover. Robert moved up the ranks of court, but fell out of favor when he and his wife, Frances Howard, were found guilty of being involved in the murder of Robert's friend, Thomas Overbury. This left the door open for another favorite to take Robert's place. And that is where I left off last week. And I told you last week that I was going to start this episode with telling you about a plan that James came up with to get him out of his massive debt. And that's where we're going to start this episode. So, I have mentioned a few times already that James struggled with money problems. One of the situations that James came up with to deal with his money woes was he was going to marry off his son, Charles, to Maria Anna of Spain, and he would get her dowry. The dowry, at first, was £500,000, and it was later increased to £600,000. This match would also ensure continued peace between England and Spain, so James wouldn't have to worry about the cost of a war with Spain. This is known as the Spanish match. This match was, of course, supported by Catholics like the Howards, but 
Protestants objected. The Catholics that supported the match were known as the Spanish Party. The negotiations started in 1614 and lasted to 1623. When James formed a parliament again in 1621 to raise funds for a military expedition to support Frederick V of the Palatinate, Frederick was married to James's daughter Elizabeth. The Thirty Years' War began on May 23, 1618. Bohemia elected their kings, and in 1618 they replaced Emperor Ferdinand II with James's son-in-law Frederick V. Ferdinand was Catholic, and Protestants in Bohemia were afraid that he would push Catholicism on them. That's why they replaced him with Frederick. Frederick was a Protestant. The Thirty Years' War was what James wanted the funds for. Some Protestants in Parliament were vocal about their disapproval of the match. Pope Paul V was never going to give a dispensation so Maria and Charles could marry, and a dispensation was required since Maria was Catholic and Charles was Protestant. But Pope Paul V died on January 28, 1621. The next Pope was Pope Gregory XV. He wasn't completely opposed to the match between Charles and Maria. So James sent George Gage to Rome to lobby for the match. George was a diplomat and Roman Catholic. It was passed by a small group of cardinals under the condition that Catholics needed to be treated better in England. There were still Protestants that were not on board with the arrangement. The commons did not give James enough to really help Frederick out, and they even called to go to war with Spain. The commons, led by Sir Edward Coke, made a petition that asked to go to war with Spain since they were on the Catholic side of the Thirty Years' War. And it also asked for Prince Charles to marry a Protestant and to enforce anti-Catholic laws. They made this petition in November of 1621. James basically told them to mind their own business and that if they didn't, then they risked being punished. They reminded him of their rights, including freedom of speech. James's response to that was, quote, We cannot with patience endure our subjects to use such anti-monarchical words to us concerning their liberties, except they had subjoined that they were granted unto them by the grace and favor of our predecessors, end quote. James, after being encouraged by George Villiers, first Duke of Buckingham, more on him in a little bit, and by the Spanish ambassador, Diego Sarmiento de Acuña, Count of Gondimar, James ripped the protest out of the record book, and he dissolved Parliament. Again. Politicians were not the only ones that were not for the Spanish match. Many spoke or wrote about being against it. In 1620 and in 1621, James decreed against writing or speaking on state affairs, and people were imprisoned if they did. John Everd was a preacher, and he preached against the Spanish match in February of 1621. He spent about six months in the gatehouse prison. The Spanish match became more difficult for James on March 31st, 1621. That was the day that the King of Spain, Philip III, died. 
After his death, Philip's son, Philip IV of Spain, took the throne. The Count of Gondomar was a big supporter of the Spanish match, but he didn't have as much influence as he did once Philip III died. Negotiations soon began to slow. Prince Charles grew impatient, so he got the idea to travel to Spain with George Villiers, and he was going to charm Maria Anna of Spain. They didn't tell anyone of their plan, and they traveled under the names Thomas and John Smith. They arrived in Madrid on March 7, 1623. They soon learned some things that they were being kept in the dark about like the fact that Spain would only agree to a match between Charles and Maria Anna if England repealed the anti-Catholic penal laws. They also didn't know that Maria Anna was never going to agree to marry someone if they weren't Catholic. But Charles and George were welcomed at court, and Charles still believed that he could win Maria Anna over. He even gave her and the Spanish court some jewels James sent him. But Maria Anna did not like Charles at all, and so eventually Charles realized that he was not going to, in fact, win her over. Charles and George returned to England in October of 1621. The idea of Charles having a Spanish bride was so hated that when he returned without Maria Anna, the people of London rejoiced. There were celebrations and bonfires. When Charles and George returned, they proposed that the 21-year-old Charles marry Henrietta Maria. She was the 15-year-old sister of King Louis XIII of France. They also proposed to go to war with the Habsburg Spanish Empire. They told James to call another parliament so they could raise the funds. Parliament met in February of 1624. At this point, anti-Catholic sentiment was extremely high. Charles and George pressed James to go to war. They also arranged the impeachment and imprisonment of the Lord Treasurer Lionel Cranfield, first Earl of Middlesex, because he wasn't for war because he said that it would cost too much. John Digby, first Earl of Bristol, ended up being the fall guy for the failure of the Spanish match. John was the English ambassador to Spain. John was not at fault, but he was still blamed for it. John was ordered to remain on his estates, and he was eventually imprisoned in the Tower of London. He was in the Tower until 1628. James refused to go to war with Spain, but Charles did end up marrying Henrietta Maria of France after James died. I said in the second episode I did on James that James promised that he would return to Scotland every three years, but he didn't. In fact, after James became the King of England, he only returned to Scotland once in 1617. James liked to boast that he ruled Scotland with a pen, where his ancestors had to rule Scotland by a sword. In January of 1619, James's wife, Anne of Denmark's health, started to decline. She had poor blood flow. Her doctor thought that it was due to her upbringing because until she was nine years old, she was carried everywhere by her nurses instead of letting her walk. Anne died on March 2, 1619 of dropsy. 
Even though James only visited her three times during her illness, he was distraught over her death. She was buried on May 13, 1619 in King's Henry Chapel at Westminster Abbey. James did not attend her funeral because he was sick and sad. James wrote a poem about her after her death, quote, So did my queen from hence her court remove, and left off earth to be enthroned above. She's changed, not dead, for sure no good prince dies, but as the sun sets, only four to rise, End quote. James never remarried. Now, I have been mentioning a man named George Villiers, and you may have heard about George before. There is an upcoming miniseries titled Mary and George. The series is about how George's mother, Mary Villiers, Countess of Buckingham, schemed to get George close to James. I know in the UK, it is going to be on Sky Atlantic, and in the US, that is where I am from, it is going to be on Stars. Mary is played by Julianne Moore, and George is played by Nicholas Galassine, which I find interesting because he sort of played a role in why I chose the theme for this season. But again, more on that when I get to the sixth person that I will cover this season. So, who is George Villiers? George was a courtier and statesman. George had a very ambitious mother, and like I said, she schemed to get her son to seduce James. In August of 1614, George was 21, and he caught the eye of James during a hunt. James would have been 48. There were people at court that did not like James's favorite, Robert Carr, so they started promoting George with the hope that George would replace Robert. People bought George a new wardrobe, and they lobbied for him to be the royal cupbearer. That meant that he could talk with James. George then became a dancer in masks the next year, and this was a great way to gain favor with a monarch. It didn't take long for the king to fancy George. In 1615, George was knighted as a gentleman of the bedchamber. In 1616, George became the king's master of the horse. He was made Baron Wadon, Viscount Villiers, and he was made a Knight of the Garter. In 1617, James made him an Earl, and then the next year he made him Marquess of Buckingham. He was appointed Lord High Admiral of England in 1619, and in 1623, James recreated the Dukedom of Buckingham for him. At the time, George was the only Duke in England that was not a member of the royal family. George became James's lover. James had a nickname for George. It was Steenie. It was after St. Stephen. St. Stephen was said to have had the face of an angel. In 1617, James told the Privy Council, quote, You may be sure that I love the Earl of Buckingham more than anyone else, and more than you who are here assembled. I wish to speak in my own behalf and not to have it thought to be a defect for Jesus Christ did the same and therefore I cannot be blamed Christ had John and I have George end quote James and George's relationship was sort of 
an open secret. I mean, he obviously couldn't come out and say, I'm fucking Buckingham, but clearly from what I just told you, he wasn't hiding that he did have affection for George. Others noticed James and George's relationship as well. The French poet Théophile de Blau spent some time in England and he wrote that, quote, it is well known that the King of England fucks the Duke of Buckingham, end quote. James called George his child and wife, and James referred to himself as George's dad and husband. There's a lot to unpack there, and I'm not even going to begin to try because I'm not a therapist. George called himself James's dog. James and George sent letters back and forth to each other, and I'm going to read you some of them. This letter was a letter that James sent George the morning after George married Lady Catherine Manor. This was sent on May 17, 1620. Quote, My only sweet and dear child, Thy dear dad sends thee his blessings this morning and also to his daughter. The Lord of heaven sends you a sweet and blithe wakening, all kind of comfort in your sanctified bed. And bless the fruits thereof that I may have sweet bedchamber boys to play me with. And this is my daily prayer, sweetheart. When thou risest, keep thee from importunity of people that may trouble thy mind, that at meeting I may see thy white teeth shine upon me, and so bear me comfortable company in my journey, and so God bless thee, hoping thou will not forget to read over again my former letter. End quote. James sent this letter to George in December of 1622, and I need to tell you that the word gossip here means chum. Quote, My only sweet and dear child, I am now so miserable a coward, as I do nothing but weep and mourn, for I protest to God I rode this afternoon a great way in the park without speaking to anybody. And the tears trickling down my cheeks, as now they do, that I can scarcely see to write. But alas, what shall I do at our parting? The only small comfort I can have will be to pry in thy defects with the eye of an enemy, and of every moat to make a mountain, and so harden my heart against thy absence. But this little malice is like jealousy. Proceeding from a sweet root, but in one point it overcometh it. For as it proceeds from love, so it cannot but end in love. Sweetheart, be earnest with Kate to come and meet thee at Newhall within eight or ten days after this. Cast thee to be here tomorrow, as near about two in afternoon as thou can, and come galloping hither. Remember thy picture and suffer none of the counsel to come here. For God's sake, write not a word again and let no creature see this letter. The Lord of heaven and earth to bless thee 
and my sweet daughter and my sweet little grandchild and all thy blessed family and send thee a happy return both now and thou knows when to thy dear dad and Christian gossip, end quote. James wrote this on April 18th, 1623, quote, My sweet skinny gossip, the bearer hereof had so great a longing to see you as I was forced to give him leave. For news your bay Spanish mare with the black mane, and tail hath an exceeding fair and fine horsefowl of ten days old, just of her own color, but that he hath the far foot white. And there is another of them ready to foul. God send my sweet baby the like luck with his Spanish breed before this time twelve months, thus hoping that thee will give a good advice to the bearer hereof to lead a good life in times coming. I pray the Lord send my sweet steamy gossip a happy and comfortable return in the arms of his dear dad. End quote. And James sent this letter in December of 1623. Quote, my only sweet and dear child, notwithstanding of your desiring me not to write yesterday, yet had I written in the evening if, at my coming out of the park, such a drowsiness had not come upon me as I was forced to sit and sleep in my chair at half an hour. And yet I cannot content myself without sending you this present, praying God that I may have a joyful and comfortable meeting with you, and that we may make at this Christmas a new marriage, ever to be kept hereafter. For God so loved me, as I desire only to live in this world for your sake, and that I had rather live banished in any part of the earth with you than live a sorrowful widow's life without you. And so God bless you, my sweet child and wife, and grant that thee may ever be a comfort to your dear dad and husband. End quote. George also wrote to James. In August of 1615, James and George had spent a few days at Farm Castle, and George wrote to James about those days. Quote, whether you loved me now better than at the time which I shall never forget at Farnham, where the bed's head could not be found between the master and his dog, end quote. In another letter, he wrote things like, I naturally so love your person and adore all of your other parts, which are more than ever one man had. And he wrote, I desire only to live in the world for your sake. And lastly, he wrote, I shall live and die a lover of you. End quote. In another letter, he closed it with saying, quote, Your most humble slave and servant and dog, Steenie. James and George was known to kiss and caress each other in public. So he didn't love too much in the shadows like some of the other people that I will be covering this season.
In 2007, a house called Apathorth Hall was going through some restoration. This is a house that James stayed at 11 times in his life. The second best bedroom in the house was the bedroom that was closest to James's bedroom. George's bedroom was that bedroom. During the restoration, a pair of secret connecting doors was found. Those doors connected James's room to George's. They had been bricked up for centuries. Even with all of this evidence, there are still scholars that don't feel comfortable saying that James and George had a sexual relationship. But I feel comfortable saying that. Now, I won't say whether or not it was love or just lust. I think it's possible that on George's side, it was neither and he was just sleeping with James for power. But for James, he had nothing to gain from this relationship with George except sexual pleasure and maybe true affection, even if it may have just been one-sided. So, I think that we absolutely need to look at James as a queer figure. I think for some scholars, them refusing to acknowledge that a historical figure, especially one that was in power, was a member of the LGBTQ community is just them purposely trying to erase a part of that person's identity. But I think for some, they're just shocked that LGBTQ people existed prior to the late 20th century. But they did. And I like that I have gotten the opportunity this season to uncover some of their stories and share them with you. And I cannot wait to share more stories with you this season. James's later years were plagued with health problems. He had arthritis, gout, and kidney stones. He lost all of his teeth. I mentioned in either the first or second episode I did on James that he liked to drink a lot. And he didn't slow that down just because he was aging. There is a theory that James may have had porphyria. Porphyria affects the skin and nervous system. It changes the color of your urine to purple. Sometimes this can cause psychiatric symptoms like anxiety, confusion, hallucinations, and even psychosis. King George III, a direct descendant of James, had this. King George III is the king on Bridgerton. He is also going to make another guest appearance on this podcast later on this season. People have theorized that James had porphyria because James told his physician, Theodore D. Myron, that his urine was, quote, dark red color of Alicante wine. But many believe that the dark red urine was caused by James's kidney stones. In early 1625, James had severe attacks of arthritis, gout, and fainting fits. In March, he fell seriously ill with malaria. Then he had a stroke. In late March, he got dysentery, and that killed him on March 27, 1625, at Theobald's house. He was 58 years old. George Villiers was at his bedside when he passed. James's funeral was on May 7th, 1625. It was a grand affair. It cost around 50,000 pounds, but it was also a messy and disordered affair. 
The sermon was a two-hour sermon given by James's friend, Bishop John Williams of Lincoln. In the sermon, John compared James to King Solomon. The sermon was later printed as Great Britain's Solomon. James was buried in Westminster Abbey. The location of his tomb was lost for a long time, but his lead coffin was found in Henry VII's vault in the 19th century during excavation. I thought you might be curious as to what happened to George Villiers after James' death. I don't ever plan on doing an episode on George because I have already told you a great deal about him already. So I will tell you now the fate of George Villiers. So when it became clear that James was getting close to the end of his life, George made sure that he got close to James's son Charles because George knew that Charles would be the next king and he needed to secure his future. Now, he didn't have like a sexual relationship with Charles or anything like that. At least I don't think he did, but he did get close to him. By the time that James had died, George had made some enemies at court. Many didn't like the favoritism that James showed George, and many didn't like that George was using his relationship with James to promote his own family at court. After James died, George's enemies accused George of poisoning James. Pamphlets and ballads about how George murdered James swirled around London. There was so much chatter about it that Parliament launched an investigation and looked into the rumors. But nothing ever came of it. In the book The King's Assassin, The Secret Plot to Murder King James I, author Benjamin Woolley claims that George did kill James. George may have poisoned James with what was meant to be a remedy. Or maybe he murdered James because he was overcome with ambition and he was frustrated by James's passive approach to government. This book is what that miniseries Mary and George is based on. I want to note here that Benjamin Woolley is the only one I found that is claiming this. When James was alive, Parliament tried to impeach George twice, and both times, James dissolved the Parliament before they could. But in 1628, James was no longer around to save George, and now George's enemies wanted to do more than just impeach him. George's physician, Dr. Lamb, was thought to have a diabolical influence over George. Dr. Lamb was mobbed in the streets, and he died. Afterwards, Pamphlets went around that said, quote, Let Charles and George do what they can. The Duke shall die like Dr. Lamb. End quote. On August 23rd, 1628, at Greyhound Inn in Portsmouth, George was stabbed to death. John Felton was George's assassin. He was an army officer that believes that he had been passed over for a promotion by George. John was hanged for the murder on November 29th, 1628, but many saw him as a hero for murdering George. When James died, he was mourned by many. The town of Jamestown, Virginia is named after him. Plays that have been written about James are Jamie the Sax by Robert McClellan, The Burning by Stuart Kahn, and Anne Boleyn by Howard Breton. Anne Boleyn is the only one that addresses James's bisexuality. 
There have been many movies and TV shows that have had a depiction of James. There's far too many of them for me to list them all here, but they have covered a wide range of subjects from James's life. Like Mary Queen of Scots, to Queen Elizabeth I, to the gunpowder plot, to his relationship with George Villiers. Many famous actors have gotten to portray James, like Jeremy Irons in the PBS TV series Freedom, A History of Us. Robert Carlyle in the BBC series Gunpowder, Treason, and Slot. Aaron Cumming in an episode of Doctor Who titled The Rich Finders. And Tony Curran in the upcoming TV miniseries Mary and George. James is in the novels The Fortunes of Nigel by Walter Scott. To Have and to Hold by Mary Johnson. When Love Calls Men to Arms by Stephen Calmers. Mine is the Kingdom by Jane Oliver and The King's Minion by Raphael Sabatini. I don't know about the other books, but The King's Minion portrays James as being attracted to both Robert Carr and George Villiers. It also implicates him in the murder of Thomas Overbury. James is also in the comic series Marvel 1602 and its sequels. James's line is still alive today. In fact, the current king of Great Britain King Charles III is a direct descendant of James. And that was the life of King James VI and I. Thank you so much for listening to the 8th episode of the 4th season of History Shelf. And if you've listened to all 4 episodes on James, thank you. We finally made it to the end of this man's life. I am going to be covering 15 people this season. Who knows how many episodes it's going to be. Next week is going to be about someone new. Next week's episode is going to be about Queen Christina of Sweden. I hope you come back for that. A few things before we go. If you want to follow this podcast on social media, the TikTok is at History Shelf. The Instagram is at History underscore Shelf underscore Pod. And the Twitter is at History Shelf Pod. And the Facebook page is History Shelf Podcast. If you want to help out this podcast financially, there are a few ways you can do that. One is you can buy merch from the History Self merch store, or you can become a Patreon. This podcast is always going to be free, but there are some perks that come along with becoming a Patreon. The first tier is called History Student, and that is $1 a month. And with that, I will give you a shout out on all social media platforms that History Self is on. I will also choose one Patreon at random for each episode I do, and at the end of the episode, I will give that Patreon a shout-out. The second tier is called History Fan, and that is $3 a month. And with that, you get the first tier, plus you get to vote in a poll that helps me choose a theme for the next season of this podcast. The third tier is called History Buff, and that is $20 a month. And with that, you get the first two tiers, plus you will get a handwritten note of thanks mailed to you from me. And the last tier is called History Lover, and that is $40 a month. And with that, you get the first three tiers. Plus, you get to choose one item from the History Stuff merch store. You can choose any item that you want, except for the zip-up hoodie. If you want to take out ad space on this podcast, I have a gig on Fiverr that lets you do that. Also, there are some affiliated links that you can click on. There is one for... Riverside, there's one for Amazon, and there's one for Bookshop. If you click on one of those links and you buy something, that helps support the podcast. But if you don't want any of the merch, and you don't want any of the perks, and you don't want to buy anything, but you still want to help support the podcast, I've turned on listener support on Spotify for podcasters. 
Links to everything that I just mentioned will be in the episode description for this episode. But, as always, the best way that you can help support this podcast is to just continue to listen to it. And there are a few other ways that you can help out this podcast for free. One is if you are listening on a platform that lets you rate this podcast five stars and or leave a positive review, that would be very helpful. Also, sharing this podcast on social media with your friends and family would be very helpful. Well, until next time, keep learning, keep loving history, and come back for next week's episode. Bye.